Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, I'm Diane Estabrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily Pulse. The home care industry is clearly in crisis due to a shortage of workers. Agencies are turning away clients, keeping wait lists, and losing revenue in the process. So what's the answer? I recently sat down with Howard Gleckman, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Urban Tax Policy Center. He's been following the long-term care industry for decades. We started our conversation talking about the industry's so-called gray workforce. These are workers who get paid cash under the table. I asked him about the size of the gray workforce and exactly who these workers are. So the short answer is we actually have no idea how many there are. There are, there are no good data at all about them. And it's not surprising because when you think about it, they're working under the table. They're working for cash. Um, They're not paying often. They're not paying taxes, Social Security taxes or payroll taxes. So we know very little about them. Some of them may be illegal, uh, uh, undocumented uh, uh, immigrants. So um, we don't know much. Um, There are some estimates that as many as a third of caregivers are receiving support, of family caregivers are receiving support from the gray market. But those data are, you know, not uh, very robust. So we don't know. Um, as far as who they are, uh, th- they are a wide range of people. Many of them are, as I say, immigrants, some who are here legally, some of who are not. Some are uh, native born. There are some who uh, are not licensed caregivers because they do not like the idea of the constraints that having a license may give. So, for example, if you're a caregiver in a rural area, uh, local nurse delegation laws, state nurse delegation laws may say that you can't administer medications uh, without the direct supervision of a nurse. Well, there may not be a nurse to provide that direct supervision. And some of these aides who I've talked to have said the reason that they've not licensed is because they, they know it's necessary to administer these medications. And uh, with a license, they can't. So they perversely, they don't get licensed. Interesting. Let's set aside the immigration issue for a moment. Is there a way that the home care industry could tap into this workforce in some way? And how would they be able to do that? You talked about the medication. Is this an issue of certification? Is it a, a, a policy restriction? That kind of thing. Yeah. So, so the nurse delegation rules are a restriction imposed by states, generally at the request of, of nurses who don't want the competition, frankly. Um, in today's market, where there's such a dramatic shortage of registered nurses, the idea of a nurse uh, having to take time out to, to administer uh, a medication, going from house to house, uh, is, is, is frankly silly and counterproductive. So I think that a lot of these rules could be updated. As far as what the home care industry could do to uh, entice these uh, gray market workers to become part of the workforce, frankly, one of the things would be to pay them more and and give them benefits. You think of it like this, pre-COVID, if the the average national uh, wage or the average national cost of a a direct care worker, a home care worker was $25 an hour, an agency would generally take about half of that and the aid would get half. So if there were a situation where an aid could get more than that, then perhaps the aides would be willing to, to go to work for agencies or at least work with agencies. 
You talked about states and we're starting to see a little bit of movement from some states. New York pushed through some higher wages for direct care workers. And now we're seeing it happening potentially in New Jersey. But as far as regulations are concerned, are any states addressing those issues that you just talked about? Not that I know of. I mean, there's a little bit of movement on nurse delegation, but very little. As far as the wages are concerned, you know, honestly, state law is probably lagging the market. I think wages are increasing um, just because of the labor shortage and people are demanding more money to do this work. Uh, you know, as you know, the, this is very dangerous work. It's, it's, it's as dangerous to be a, a, a home health aide as it is to be a coal miner in the United States because the rate of injuries is so high, primarily back injuries, but also depression. Uh, you have the, the workforce primarily women. Many of these women have their own children who they're still caring for at home or their own parents who they're caring for at home. Um, and, and candidly, they don't want to do this work. And the only way to get them to do it is going to be pay them more. The problem with that is, you know, you think about the families that are paying these aides. They didn't have the money to pay them $25 an hour. Now they've got to pay them $30 an hour or more. They don't have it. So the result is going to be many families are going to have to either forego uh, uh, home health care or they're going to have to cut the hours because they can't simply can't afford this. One of the one of the issues I'm seeing more and more is a lot of pushback from families who are strongly resisting the four hour minimums. Because they said with these increased wages, we simply cannot do four hours. But of course, from the agency's point of view, they don't want to lose that because of the inefficiency of travel and all the rest. So this is a this is a real difficult balancing act. Gotcha. Let's move on to immigration. And you have talked extensively about immigration reform. In your eyes, what does that look like? Is it some kind of a guest worker visa or is it something else? So the most direct way to deal with this would be some sort of a, of a visa. There were in the past visas for special visas for nurses. That program has sort of largely disappeared. But there's no reason why it couldn't be reinstalled. It's important to remember, you know, as you think about immigration, we're competing with the rest of the world for these immigrant care workers. Places like Germany and France and Israel and Japan, all of them are scrambling to get care workers. Even a place like Japan, which, of course, has been historically resistant to immigration, uh, is now looking to to foreign-born workers to do this work as the world's population ages so rapidly, every country is is competing for a limited resource now of care workers. And um, we are, we, we have been for the last several years closing our doors to them. And you think about that in terms of aging policy, and it's completely counterproductive. So we have to now think about ways that we can open the doors. So a visa is certainly a start. We could also think about providing more educational opportunities, other opportunities for people to come here and, and improve their lives. So maybe they come here as an aide and, and after a while can get a, a license as an LPN or maybe even a registered nurse. So there's a lot we can do in that area. You know, one of the things that happened during the Trump administration was um, they were barring immigration from people who would likely have to use public uh, supports. Um, and the reality is that home care workers are being paid so little that many of them, in fact, would be on Medicaid. So that was a catch-22 
that made it very difficult for uh, direct care workers to come here, even though, of course, many of them would not have been able to get many of this public welfare because they weren't citizens. But some of it may have been available to them. And because of that, they were they were banned by the Trump administration. We're hearing associations like Leading Age and the Home Care Association of America pushing for immigration reform. But are they doing enough? And do they have the ear of Congress at the moment? So, look, immigration reform is such a fraught issue right now that getting Congress to listen to the relatively narrow needs of the aging community and the disability community is very, very difficult. The reality is you just say the word immigration and half of the United States Senate is going to say no. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's just very difficult. This particular issue is an extremely important one to people in our world, but it's a small piece of a much bigger, much more politically controversial issue. And I don't know how we're going to find a way to pull out the importance of immigration and direct care work from the broader issues of immigration. Let's switch gears a bit. You've followed this industry very, very closely for a number of years. What is elder care going to look like in the future? You know, currently we have facility-based care, we have home care. But is that reasonable going forward? Is there some sort of a hybrid type of care that we might be seeing down the road? So I, I have said something that's not very popular among some segments of the aging, uh, the, the, the senior service community, and that is I think nursing homes as we knew them before COVID are largely dead. Um, I think that business model where you are, uh, you have, you know, one wing of post-acute people who, have, who are circulating in and out of hospitals and another wing of very frail older adults is not only economically unsustainable, but from a public health perspective, it's a disaster. If we, if we learned anything from COVID, it was putting people cycling in and out of hospitals in the same building as frail older adults was a catastrophe. It was one of the things that resulted in so many residents of nursing homes dying from COVID. So I, I think that business model is, is um, uh, in real trouble. You think about payment is declining for post-acute. Medicare payments are certainly not going up. And in fact, most recently, the proposal was to reduce them somewhat. Medicare Advantage payments are, are putting enormous pressure on nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities. Medicaid is, is certainly not looking to raise payment rates for long-stay residents. And then on top of all of that, you have more post-acute business just going directly to the home. People don't need to go to a skilled nursing facility to get rehab for, for a knee surgery anymore. They can do it at home. Uh, the, the, the surgical techniques make it easier and the, the, the ability to do rehab makes it easier. And long stay, people don't want to stay in nursing homes. There are only, many of them are only there because that's where Medicaid pays. So in that environment, I think the nursing homes are, are, are going to go through a, a tremendously disruptive period. I think that there is going to be uh, some, there needs to be some facility-based care. There's no doubt about that. Um, we don't really quite know what it's going to look like. It's, it's not going to be the assisted living facilities that we've come to see because many of them don't provide enough care for some of those people who otherwise would be in nursing homes. 
So there's going to have to be a somewhat different model. Small group homes are certainly a model. I've seen some very interesting examples of uh, clusters of small group homes where they can they can share the nurse and the uh, and the social worker and the, and the other supports that they need. You know, home care. You know, the cliche is everybody wants to age in place; they want to stay home. But again, when you go back to the labor shortage, home care is an extremely inefficient way to deliver care. You have aides who are spending you know time in traffic. Many of these aides don't have cars, so they're going from client to client by bus. Um, this, this is a very inefficient way to deliver care. You think about, you know, the stereotypical American suburb and, and, and you know, driving in, 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 you know, terrible traffic. It's just not a very good way to do it. So, so delivering care in a, uh, in a facility makes a lot of sense. I think another model that we're going to see increasing uh, examples of is going to be providing some services in uh, low-income senior housing. Just housing with services, that idea that we see with SASH and some of those other programs, uh, I think is also going to grow. We need to get the payment system right. We need to do this in a way that the developers can be compensated for bringing in maybe a nurse or something like that. But uh, I think we, we will eventually get it right. And I think that's going to be another model we'll see. What about expansion of PACE? Um, it's been successful in some areas where it's been tried, but you think it's only covering right now about 60,000 people. What has been the problem with PACE? Why has it not been able to expand its footprint? So there are a number of problems. One of them, states are very reluctant to expand PACE programs. I live in Maryland, where they're in the entire state, there's only one PACE program. And some of it is because of the old woodwork problem that we've been hearing about for so many years. There were states who simply don't want to make Medicaid too good for long-term care because they're afraid more people will enroll and it's going to cost them more money. So you have a state reluctance to expand. There are also technical problems. There's a problem with PACE recipients and their ability to get Part D drug benefits. They have to pay an extremely high amount of, of money for medications. That's a problem Congress could easily fix, but hasn't ever gotten around to doing it. The other problem with PACE is it is possible to do PACE without being a dual eligible. You could, you could, you could do PACE and, and essentially pay for the Medicaid piece yourself, and Medicare would pay for the other piece. But that's very expensive. And, uh, you know, PACE is not a cheap model. So uh, that's a problem. So I, th- I think all of this can be addressed but it's going to require a more aggressive effort on the part of Congress and to the degree they can, the regulators, to expand PACE. This is one of these things, everybody loves PACE, but somehow it just isn't being expanded as quickly as uh, it ought to be. And there are other models as well. Um, Special needs plans are also, in some cases, doing this very, very well. So that's an option we we could see more of as time goes on, where you get fully integrated care. You know, what, what the special needs plans and the PACE programs have in common is these are fully at-risk programs. So it is, it is financially to their benefit to provide good uh, supports and services because by doing that, they can keep people out of the hospital. And by keeping people out of the hospital, they can run a program in a, in a, in a way that doesn't lose money. So uh, this is a very important, this idea of, of making this risk-based is a, is a very important concept. 
The other place where we're seeing this, of course, is with uh, Medicaid Advantage plans that are doing a little bit of this through the Chronic Act and through the regulatory flexibility they got a few years ago. And they're beginning to provide what you might call long-term care light, you know, still very limited services, but they're beginning to provide some of those services that could help people stay at home. You know, staying at home is not just a matter of having a place to live. Well, that's a very important part of it. You need a whole suite of additional services. You need meals deliveries and you need transportation and maybe you need adult day and you need information referral to put together all of these pieces that you need to stay home. So it's very complex. And simply saying, you know, we're going to allow people to stay at home isn't enough. You have to provide this whole infrastructure to make this really work. And, and so far, we've not been willing to do that. And two, it's all about the money and paying for it. But we've got this group that's in the middle, so they don't make enough money to pay for it themselves, and yet they don't qualify probably for Medicaid. What do we need in terms of a long-term care policy in this country? We're seeing some states like Washington trying to cobble something together where people will have some money um, that they that that will be set aside for them once they retire and they need to go into some sort of housing. But you know, from from a federal level, what do we need to be doing? Diane, this is what I worry about the most: are those people who are not poor enough to be eligible for Medicaid but don't have the resources to pay for long-term care as expensive as it is uh, themselves. And that's the kind of the great middle, you know, what people in the long-term care insurance industry call the middle market. And we've done almost nothing for them. Private long-term care insurance as it exists is too expensive for most people. And it doesn't cover true catastrophic costs. It's very difficult to buy any private policy now that'll cover more than five years of need. So I think, frankly, that we're going to need some sort of a government public program. And I've been involved in a couple of projects that have proposed a catastrophic public long-term care insurance program uh, that would kick in after a couple of years, and it would be funded by a payroll tax. This is a proposal that so far politicians have been unwilling to adopt because they don't want to raise taxes. But the reality is the government already is paying for long-term care of millions of people through Medicaid. And it would be better for the government and better for the public if this were an insurance program rather than a welfare-based program like Medicaid is. So we've done some analysis at the Urban Institute that suggests that Medicaid long-term care costs could be reduced by as much as a third if we had a public long-term care benefit. So Washington State, as you say, has tried this on a state basis. California is thinking about it. Minnesota is thinking about it. Illinois, Michigan, a number of states are uh, exploring this idea. I think one of the things we learned from the Washington State experiment is it's very complicated to do this in just one state. We've seen that, that with Washington State, a number of issues have come up. What if you work in Washington and live in another state? What if you live and work in Washington, but then retire to a different state? It raises a number of issues that are very challenging if you're doing this on a state-by-state basis. We are a mobile society. People do move. And, uh, and, you know, what do you do if you work for 10 years in state A, become eligible for a public long-term care insurance program, and then move to state B because that's where your kids are, and you've just lost the benefits of this insurance program? So I think in the end, it's going to have to be a national program. I like the idea of a catastrophic benefit rather than a front-end benefit, which is what Washington did. 
But uh, either way, I think we need to have a public program. We need to recognize that long-term care is a, a, a tremendous need in this country. There are 14 million people who need it. Uh, there are maybe 30 or 40 million caregivers, family caregivers, who are trying to support their, their loved ones. And we do not have a program that's sufficient to take care of them. And one of the consequences of that is we're spending billions of dollars hospitalizing people who don't need to be hospitalized if they could get the care that they required. 20% of people, of older adults, who come to hospital emergency departments have a comorbidity of malnutrition. That is something that is entirely preventable if people could get good supports and services while they were living at home. Think about the cost of those people coming to the emergency department, being admitted to the hospital, how much care you could provide to those people at home uh, for the cost of a hospitalization and an ED visit. So we're being penny wise and pound foolish here. Uh, we need to think about ways to take some of the money we're spending in healthcare and moving it into long-term care. But even after we do that, we also have to recognize we're going to have to raise taxes to pay for this. We, there's, there's no other way to avoid it. Great discussion. Howard Gleckman, thank you so much for joining me. Diane, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home